Hello, Skylit listeners. We have a special surprise for you. Next month, acclaimed author Marlon James will be headlining our author talk series. And to celebrate, he gave us some signed copies of his new book, Moon Witch Spider King, the second book in his Dark Star trilogy, just for our podcast listeners. The first 50 people to pre-order will receive a signed copy. Make sure to add the phrase Moon Witch Red in the order comments before checkout. That's Moon Witch Red. Signed copies are available while supplies last, and this exclusive offer ends Wednesday, February 9th. Happy reading! You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and require all customers to wear masks in the store, regardless of vaccination status. We also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, skylightbooks.com, and you can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page, crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. It's my real pleasure to be joined by my buddy Sasha Fletcher today to discuss his first novel, Be Here to Love Me at the End of the World. In addition to this novel, Sasha is the author of a book of poems, several chapbooks of poetry, and a novella. His work can be found both online and in print. How are you today, Sasha? I'm doing pretty well, Mike. How are you? It's, it's, it's wonderful to see you on this, this cute little thing that we're doing. It's nice to see your face on Zoom after a long time, and I'm really excited to discuss this book of yours, which I enjoyed so much. Uh, it's a real delight, and it's raining in L.A. today, and that feels sort of fitting for this book and for having you on the podcast. It's 48 degrees in Brooklyn, so that really kind of feels also like... 48 degrees in December is, is not, it's not far from the end of the world. Like you can see it, but like, you don't know when it'll get here. Exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So Sasha is going to read a little bit from his novel and then he and I are going to talk about it for a bit and then, uh, we'll call that a day. Um, so if that sounds good, Sasha, and you got something picked out, you can take it away. It's winter in Brooklyn, and it's been snowing for days. The trains are fucked, the pipes are frozen, the heat is too strong. A mountain made entirely of snow that formed in Central Park five minutes ago just fell on a small toddler. The cops are shooting children in the street. All the vegetables look sad. It is not exactly Christmas. The president cut unemployment down to a month, and the news says the attorney general is about to shoot someone on live TV. It's too hot in the bedroom because in New York, the landlord holds the thermostat. So Sam gets up and opens a window. Open it wider, says Eleanor, who Sam thought was asleep. He checks the humidifier, which is empty. It is not enough. The window isn't open enough. The humidifier isn't isn't humid enough. The cold isn't cold enough. Nothing could ever possibly be enough. His sinuses are a vast and arid desert as barren as the fucking plains. He goes online and buys a new humidifier, one with an incredible coverage capacity. Their ceilings are too high. 
When the new humidifier, sleek, white, tall, with a wide and easy-to-clean mouth, finally comes, as was promised and foretold by the internet, which has never lied to us, they can use the old one for guests or for plants or the office. They moved into this apartment for the office. Eleanor asks Sam what he's doing. Technically, the office is a bedroom for the purposes of billing, and technically it could be if you were like a, like a small child and therefore unable to contribute to the rent. Technically, Eleanor is asleep. Eleanor rolls over in her sleep in bed. Sam could be in bed. It looks nice and promises naught but tenderness. In the morning, Sam will have to close the window because it will be freezing. Sam gets in bed. He holds on to Eleanor for dear life. It is absolutely incredible. Up in their homes are the landlords. Who even knows what they're doing there? It is four in the morning. Nobody is being arrested right now, so there's that. Interest rates are holding. Jobs exist. And if you want, we can prove it. Plus, nobody in this room has thought about a nuclear bomb going off all day. The three train is delayed indefinitely. The G train is in the river. We don't know which one. If we did, it wouldn't be in the river still. Now would it? Up in the sky is the moon. Is the moon a snitch? It's hard to say. The moon conducts the tides, which pull at our hearts day and night. A whole bunch of babies are, this instant, born, screaming, each and every one of them. Good luck out there, babies. I hope your parents love you very much and that the cops don't shoot you. I hope you're never scared of money and that you never have to decide between rent or groceries. I hope the moon speaks to you and that when it does, you listen. The moon is not a snitch. I'm sorry I said that earlier. I take it back. Go to sleep. Close your eyes. In the morning, the world will still be here. I'm sorry. I promise. The snow is weeping. The postal workers walking through the snow, the sleet, the dead of night are weeping. The dead of night is weeping and so are the dead. The dead are still weeping. This is America. The dead weep in America. All across America, the sleeping Americans are weeping. Even their tears are weeping. Sam's dead is weeping and Eleanor in her sleep is weeping from thinking about Sam's debt, which is weeping and the weight it places upon his future every single day. And Sam's future is weeping and weeping and weeping. And we are, I swear to God, drowning in our dreams in the weeping. This has been the Weeping Report. Tune in next time for more weeping. Eleanor can't sleep. She turns over to Sam and says his name. To try to wake him. Sam is a shitty sleeper and needs all the sleep he can get. This doesn't matter right now, though. It's an extraneous detail, so don't worry about it. Someone needs to watch over their loved one's dreams. I'll say that much. Meanwhile, Eleanor is saying, Sam, louder and louder. Sam rolls over onto her. This solves nothing. This solves nothing, says Eleanor, while Sam lays flopped on top of her. She says, Sam, I cannot sleep. Even if Sam could fall back asleep again, he could not do it if Eleanor was up and upset because he would feel terrible for her because she loves to sleep and it breaks his heart when she's sad. It just breaks his fucking heart wide open. So Sam gets up. Sam gets everyone a nice glass of ice cold water. Sam puts on an old cartoon where this clown goes into a mysterious cave while the snow falls and a beautiful woman is in a glass coffin and then a witch flying on a mirror puts her mirror over the 
a clown like Annette, and then the clown's a ghost. He's in love. Then everything's chilly. It's cold. It's frozen over. There's nothing but the snow. They watch a cartoon where a sad little ghost sits in a graveyard looking at pictures of animals till the other ghosts wake up. They try to get the sad little ghost to go around and spook everyone. There are a bunch of ghost planes in the sky, dive-bombing homes for miles around, screaming, boo, at everyone they hit. But the sad little ghost sees no future and any pain beyond his own. And he goes out to make friends, but everyone is terrified of him, due to him confronting them with not only their own mortality, but the possibility that heaven is, if not alive, at least inaccessible. Then he meets a skunk and the skunk freaks out. Now he's in the tub, he's drying out on a log, he's weeping. At this point, the other ghosts hear his tears and they pick him up, they fly him into town. He's weeping, still. They drop him in the middle of a dance. It's a Halloween dance. There's a pretty girl dressed like a ghost, then everyone dies. Then there's a mouse who is in love with another mouse. He works all day making shoes so he can buy a nice dinner for this mouse he is in love with, but it isn't enough. He has to wash the dishes to pay for the rest of the meal and he is so embarrassed. He is weeping and washing the dishes because nothing he can do will ever be enough. When all of a sudden the mouse he is in love with shows up and washes the dishes right next to him and kisses him on the cheek. Then there's a pig dressed as a cop out in his cop car and he gets shot in the face by a bandit. He does not find the bandit, so he goes to get an ice cream. While in line, he gets shot in the face. Again, he arrests the whole store. He throws it in a sack and drags it over to prison. Everything goes black. Everyone who worked on these cartoons is dead now. They've been dead for so long. Their children are dead, and their grandchildren are dead, and even their memories are dead, and they died drunk and broke, and they put their whole lives into things that will outlive us all. When the dead animators' wives, who are also dead, come home, it just takes their breath away. Someone put a fresh amaryllis in a beautiful vase. It is three feet tall, and it keeps growing. It is blooming. The whole room is full of flowers now. In the next room is death. Death wears a white suit and white cowboy boots and a white bolo tie and such a fine white hat and has a horse's skull perfectly clean for a face. Death loves it here because it's so beautiful. The flowers are everywhere. I hope we never have to leave. Thank you, Sasha. What a great reading. Um, I'm glad everyone listening to this will get to hear it because it is such a wild and fun and often dark book all at once. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how it came into being, because I know you had told me in preparation for this talk that, you know, you wrote some parts of this book as far back as like 2011. So some of these, some of this started as a few like very short, like, even like like flash like 200 to 500 word pieces about maybe three or four and uh that was like 2000 sometime between 2007 2009 it was back when i was in philly after after art school and before grad school and then in 2015 i sort of combined a bunch of these and wrote this short story called warren Beatty is a sad sad man and it very clearly was not a short story. It was absolutely something that should have been a novel. And I tried to place this excerpt um, and uh, Luke Goble was editing stuff and he had asked me, I, I swear to God, I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm sorry, Luke, if I got your name wrong. We've only ever spoken on the phone and I've never actually uh, formally heard anyone pronounce your last name before. So this could be incredibly embarrassing and shameful for me. Uh, but that's fine. That's just life. So 
so Luke told me that he didn't want this piece because it seemed like it was a novel. And then he took uh, a chapter from the, this other novel that I wrote, which absolutely stood on its own in a way that this thing was just unable to, cause it needed to be this bigger, weirder, wilder thing. And, uh, I'd written this Western. It didn't, no one wanted it. Everyone liked it. Everyone said it was beautiful. Nobody wanted it. In their defense, it was a broken, strange thing that made no sense. Um, so I wrote another even more broken, even stranger thing that made even less sense. And I just kept writing it. It was probably two different books before it became the book it is now. I threw it out two or three times and ended up coming back to the opening of it, which was this strange nebulous thing that just could have kept going forever. And I decided, fuck it, I'm just going to take the thing that makes the least sense to me that I can't help but want to live inside of and just build a home there. And I did. That's great. I love that. You know, the good projects always seem to like kind of tug you back, you know, they sort of don't let you go. And I wonder if there was like a point I'm I'm imagining like in I don't know in the last like four years or so where like this became like your main project where you're you were sort of like chugging away on it and staying in that voice and driving forward. Yeah, I mean the the Western was probably out on submission in 2015, I think, and I I sort of started this and no the Western was out on submission after that maybe 2016. I don't remember the full timelines and I don't really feel like going through. Yeah emails but this ended up just being that didn't sell I knew I had this thing it was the weirdest thing I'd ever done and I figured like there was no like I'd spent three years writing this western at one point it was 140,000 words it was this huge epic weird thing that I felt like I was supposed to write so I did and then Nothing worked out with that. So I came back to this thing and I just kept coming back to it. I kept trying to make it stranger and stranger. I had originally, it was structured like a late period Lynch movie. So the part that is now actually the book, like the the beginning of the book basically, uh, was the start of it. And then at the end, they went to dinner and at dinner... Warren Beatty was a character in it and at dinner, like they were describing Warren Beatty films to each other and Warren, all of a sudden, like Warren's Warren Beatty's brother walks in and the whole room is full of police because they've got $5 million in their trunk because they robbed a bank and they have to kill all the cops and they have to escape. It's a giant shootout and they drive around and they rob every bank in America and they take all of the money and they send it to Warren Beatty and Warren Beatty uses the money that they robbed from the banks to buy all of the debt that the banks hold and then forgive them. And so that, and then like there's a weird interlude and then there's another story where it's the same characters, but they're different people the way like in Lost Highway, it's the same people. And then all of a sudden like Balthazar Getty like is Bill Pullman and then clearly like Mulholland Drive and then the part with like the screaming like two and a half hours into Inland Empire, which I'm assuming is a six hour movie. I think it's like three and a half, but it feels like it's six hours in a good way or a bad way. It really depends on like what vibe you bring to it, I think. And 
when I, when people would ask me about it, I would tell them about it. And the only part that you can really describe plot wise is clearly like that part with the bank robberies and shit. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of describing the last 20 pages of the first half to people. I'm just going to cut it. I'm going to go back to this book. I'm going to cut the only part that seems like a relatable narrative. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to use it as like a movie that they watch. And then in the video, in the Wings of Desire video game that Sam keeps playing when he's depressed. And I'm just going to write about these two people who love each other in a really bad dream about like what this fucking country is. And I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to keep doing that part because that part was the strangest thing I could think to do. And I didn't know what would happen next. And that felt like the best way to write. Yeah. Yeah. Like when everything is a surprise to you, it can also be a surprise to the reader. Yeah. I guess like it just feels the most alive that way. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had that feeling sometimes reading this book that, you know, to me, it seemed like you were sort of rebelling against plot against sort of what we think of as the footholds of what a reader needs. Like, it, it felt like double middle fingers to any sort of workshop advice you would get. Like, no, no one's going to advise someone to write like this book in workshop because, you know, to, to kind of trust voice to do the heavy lifting is not something that a lot of people can do. And, and I think it can be a tricky thing to have faith in, in, in your own voice that it's going to be engaging without story and a lot of characters and sort of these, these things were sort of programmed that feel familiar and, um, we think of as like safety nets for the reader or something. Um, and that's why, you know, sort of when we were getting ready for this, I, I thought about that, that Western. I was like, this feels like Sasha sort of letting himself just really let it rip with no sense of what the reader cares about, what the market cares about. And it's just gonna, you know, write in a sustained scream. And I, I thought it, it was great to hear you read it because that energy really does pull the reader through. And it is like a pretty impossible book. I was reading it like over Christmas and, you know, my family was asking me like, what's this book about? And I was like, it's about like debt and the cops and New York. And there's a nuke that's going to hit New York maybe. And then also these two people who live in Brooklyn and really love each other. And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, you, I'll, I'll read you. Let me read you something. That, that's truly what I did. Um, and then they kind of well, got think, it. I do think that like, the one thing that felt really, the part that made the book make the most sense was when I was, I was looking at it and I was trying to, you know, like I was thinking like, oh, when you read a book, it's, it's got like the title of the book and then it says a novel. And I thought like, well, I should tell people what it is. Like, yeah, it's a novel, but like what it is, is it's a love story set in a bad dream about America. And I figure if you tell people that right away, they're just going to know what they're in for. Yeah, I mean, it's called Be Here to Love Me at the End of the World. I would think that that alone would give you, like, a pretty good clue. But if it didn't, like, right before the book starts, it says in big letters on a beautifully designed page. They, I mean, I, I mean you, you got a galley. I think they did an incredible job, like, really trying to weave the design all the way through. I think it's a really beautifully designed book. But, like, it says in big word, in big, big, big font, a love story set in a bad dream about America. That's what the book is. If you're wondering what I wrote, it's a love story set in a bad dream about America. Yeah, and that just sounded like kind of like um, a nicely phrased expression when I first encountered it. But then within like five pages, I was like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, you get five really, pages and you're like, oh, that's, really that's what this is. Yeah, yeah. You just wanted to prep us. Yeah, 
Um, and that actually brings me to, you know, there's so many wild, very dreamy things happening in here. Like, you know, it snows for the entire winter. Um, their courses overrun New York City's roadways. Uh, I love that and one. And the bridges, they clog but, the bridges. But one of uh, an aspect of a dream that I thought was really good is there are these elements of the mundane and the familiar that come in periodically and are sort of grounding. And I think the most notable of these is, is how much cooking Sam does. And there are just these, um, these scenes of Sam preparing dinner in this loving way that reads, you know, very much like food writing. You know, it's, it's, it's preparation, it's ingredients. And um, I'm assuming, I, I don't cook, but they, they seemed like delicious recipes. I found myself like snacking a lot when I was eating this, reading this book. You could, I mean, I, so I've never actually written down any, this is the closest I've come to writing them down. So there, there are no proportions, sadly. Um, I don't really know that uh but they are all they are all dinners that i know how to make so i thought i remember reading some vonnegut books and he would have these little like recipe parts in there where he would just be like if you're hungry you should cook this because like people get hungry and i thought like that's a really cool thing and with the narrator stuff like i remember reading as a kid all these fairy tales and and the the just so stories and they were all things where like there was always a narrator and the narrator was what drew, what like who really dragged you through like the entirety of this and so for me growing up as a as a reader like there were always narrators and the narrator was a voice and the voice is the thing that told you the story and it just seemed easier if there could be a way for me to tell people a story. And it also, having a narrator made it a lot easier to try to not use the characters to be like mouthpieces for ideas or anything. Right. They could just be people. I will say that like, I really, Gary Lutz, Gary, sorry, Gary L. Lutz, uh, if we could, <laughs> we start over if we get yeah, out of yeah, that. Yeah. Yep. Gary L. Lutz once said in a lecture, um, that a plot is a piece of ground that a body is put down or into. And I, I feel that way. Like our lives don't have plots. Yeah. Plots are things that we ascribe to our lives after the fact. Like we, we just live and there are arcs to our lives. And I feel like every single person in the book who like has a name, like they get, they get an arc that like gets like fulfilled and completed. They grow, they change things happen to them. But like, and the book, I mean, the seasons change. That's like what happens in the book. Like the seasons change and America grinds us into nothing. And then like the angels come. Yeah. <laughs> like that's. And in the meantime, there's dinner and there's love and there's movies. And like we go to work and it sucks. I mean, it doesn't suck, but like labor is labor. Work is work. A job is a job. Did you feel like. I, I'm just curious about like the cooking in particular, like, did you feel like you needed to have these sort of grounding elements um, within the wildness? Because like, I, I don't know if when the first one of these cooking scenes comes in, but to me, it felt like I would read and there'd be like 10 pages of a lot of ideas and these like historical tangents. And then it would be coming back to a cooking scene and it reminded me of like meditation or something where it's like, now I'm coming back and catching my breath, you know, like, cause it, it became just so, scene and we're in the kitchen and we're sort of slowing down and it, it worked really well and I wondered if like you know in your revisions or something if that became like a choice like where you know you're trying to go for maximum wildness but did you feel like you needed to put in these sort of like touchstone moments for to sort of like recalibrate 
This is a two-part answer. The first part is that in, in grad school, uh, where I, I went for poetry, I had this great teacher named Josh Bell. And Josh told me one day, like, if you're going to do the surreal and the dream, if you're going to deal with that, you need to talk about birds living in a person's chest the same way you talk about tying your shoe. Mm -hmm. You cannot change your tone or your voice when you talk about the mundane and when you talk about the fantastic, because then the reader will view the fantastic as something that is other than the mundane. So everything needs to be the same because if everything is the same, then both can be equally conceived as reality. And by treating either of them differently, you're giving the reader a way out. And what you want to do is introduce the reader to a room in which everything feels like something that they should be around and that they would ideally not want to leave. And I think that in terms of like trying to keep a reader, I, I do think about the reader a lot in the sense that like, I came up as a poet, I came up as a poet, like doing a lot of readings in bars in Brooklyn. And you learn really quick, like jokes and tenderness and being incredibly loud are great ways to force people at a bar to shut up and listen. Because you like, you owe the audience something to pay attention to at all times. They don't owe you a goddamn thing, especially if they paid money for a book. Like, you owe them a good time. But at the same time, there is no actual thing that is a good time. All you can do is try to, like, entertain yourself and hope that someone else can be entertained by that which, like, you love. People tend to respond to things that feel true and real. And the easiest way to do that is to actually just do the thing and to not worry about whether or not it feels right or it is right, you just, have to, you just have to do it and tear it out of yourself. And in terms of pacing, like this book, when you deal with like something that has no plot, the whole thing is constantly being revised and rewritten. And the entire book ends up being this thing that like I have to hold in the back of my head and in a series of notebooks that I carry around with me at all times because I got most of my ideas on the commute. Since I work in Tribeca and I live in Crown Heights, so that's like a 30, that's like a 30, 40 minute commute in the morning. So like, I, it's a great time to just be like, I'm barely awake. I am attuned to this thing that makes no sense. I will just write it down and see what it goes. You have to hold the whole thing in your back of your, in the back of your head at all times so that you can figure out where all the parts and the ideas have to go. Because at every point, the only way to stick the landing is to make sure that every single step along the way was right. So like, you don't know how it's going to end. You don't know what's going to happen next. So you have to make sure that every step is going in a way and in a pace that can continue to carry it forward, that can both propel the reader and allow the reader to at points have a rest. Cause you need like anything needs a rest. So uh, that's, that kind of segues into like a natural question about revision. Like, did you have, like, did you get to the end of this draft and come back through? Now now I have, like, a vision for, like, the, you know, my steps, and now I need to change the step a little bit. Because to me, it sort of felt like that, like, um, you know, that it almost could have been collaged at times. Like, it felt like things could have been moved around a bit and that they they add up in this very nice way. But I sort of wondered, like, how much of it had been written out of order and how much of it was just sort of finding the right places for things later on. Yes. 
<laughs> no, I mean, like, um, huge parts of it were written fully on their own. Huge parts of it were written where I cut things up, I stitched things back together. I would write something and then I'd be like, oh shit, like I got to go back and I have to thread this idea throughout the entire thing. Mm -hmm. But in order to do that, you have to read every single bit of it. You have to make small tweaks to small sentences and small places because you can't show your hand at any point. Like nothing can feel as though you've spliced it in. Every single part of it has to read from one point to the next as though it's an organic thing. It was not written like that. Yeah. It was, uh, but I mean, the weirdest thing about this book, the thing that makes this book feel to me like such, this, like such a wild object is that the day I, I so I, I placed that this excerpt in the baffler in i want to say last september and i think i finished fully finally the draft of what eventually became published in like early october the an hour after i drafted it athena bryant from melville house wrote me an email and said i'd read your piece in the baffler I'm pretty sure that it's part of a longer work. Do you have a novel? So she, she emails me to ask if I have a novel an hour after I've drafted the thing wow. for the first time. So I write her back. I'm like, yeah, but like I don't have an agent and I haven't read it. So if you give me a month, I'm going to read it and I'm going to figure this out. So I read it. My partner, Alex, read it. She gave me notes. I had my own notes. I read her notes and I read my notes. I went through, I redid it. I reworked it. I sent it to Athena and then I sent it to what is, who is now my agent, Monika Woods, and was like, hey, this just happened. I'm sending this to you. I've sent this to her. This is everything I know. And that was probably early November of 2020. And then first week of February, like first or second week of February, we had a book deal. Wow. And then after that, Athena gave me really great notes and Monika gave me really great notes. And Monika is why there's the nuclear bomb threat. She was like, your book is a little short. You should make it a little longer. What can you do? Here's a thing. Here's a thought. You know, re remember when like there was the possibility of a nuclear attack? I'm like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> So I, I, that, that just ended up being this thing that I went through and I like threaded that, that happened in like March, this March, I threaded that thing throughout the entirety of the book, which worked out really well with the part where there's like the, um, the bombing that had happened. And there's a bit after that, I think where, where the narrator says like, they're going to forget about this bombing the way that we forget about like everything because we can't remember every single trauma that we witnessed because like it will break us. Like that's cause that, that's what we do. We just like witness horrible things day after day, after day, after day. And we have to keep living. Yeah. There, there's a really nice moment in there where um, it's like probably two thirds through the book um, where it's mostly when you're talking about student debt and the invention of oh, debt. God. And then uh, 
you have the, this, the like, eagle sits at the foot of his bed and yells at him. Yeah, and you have this like meta moment where you're like, I've been told that the these last passages uh, have have been a bit too miserable or something like that. And it was really interesting because like you know, like you, I, I read like a lot of dark books, and only at that moment was like, oh my god, yeah, I do feel like the heaviness of misery on me now. Um, but it was it was just one of those great moments. It's such a, a versatile narrative voice that you you put in here and. You know, sometimes meta moments can be sort of cute and don't really land, but this narrator felt like there was, everything was on the table, um, and I enjoyed that. Was was this? Did this become like a difficult book to work on because of how much of it was? Like the tone is so light throughout, but so much of the content is deeply heavy, and I always wonder about like um, you know the the burden on the writer of, of carrying that material for an extended period of time. I would say that I don't think writing this book fucked me up any more than the last 36 years of my life have. That's good. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, just in the sense that, like, it felt very freeing to find this voice with which I could talk about the assassination of Fred Hampton by the American government in the exact same way that I could describe how I make meatballs and, like, how you tuck your, your lover into bed. And like, like what it feels like to go to to try to ask to be paid as a freelancer for work that you've already done. Right, right. Like how you could find a way to find, to talk. It 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 was a book where I had to end it because I was really worried that I would just never stop writing it. Right, right. Because the you know when you when you strike a voice like that, it can just be. Sometimes it's fun. Like I think writing is very rarely fun, but when it is, you don't want to let it go. No, and it's the thing where, like, sometimes there's, sometimes I would have no idea what to say, so it would just be, like, weeks and weeks of just having nothing and just going through and looking over and trying to make sure the sentences were working. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's that understanding that, that that's part of the work, that, like, the work is anything that you do where you spend time with it. Right. Like, you don't have to generate new material. You have to always just sit with what you've done and try to understand it better. And that in itself is essential to it. Like all the reading, all the watching, anything that you do that can inform it is part of the process of the labor of like making the thing. Yeah, that's why I, that's why I think uh, I'm very against like the Stephen King, you gotta hit like 1600 words a day kind of stuff. I think that's, I think that's crazy. I think the, the work has a lot more to do with uh, than what your word count is at the end of any given session. Yeah, just cause like, been a thing where I've 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 only added a thousand words, but that was because I I cut like and I cut like fucking like twenty thousand words. I think cutting twenty thousand words is a lot harder than like you know writing a thousand. Hundred like, <laughs> percent. You've got to go through and you've got to figure out what it is that works, and you've got to figure out how to nurture the thing that feels alive. You uh, touched on this a little bit before um, talking about the notebooks you carry around, but I was wondering if you do do any writing on your phone because some of these had the feeling of like an urgent notes app. Um, I do voice notes. Oh, voice notes. It makes you, after hearing you read, that makes even more sense. Yeah. yeah. I do voice notes just because it's, it's so much easier than, you know, your, your thumbs cramp. Yeah. Um, no one can see it, but I'm doing the thing where like you're furiously like trying to text. Yes. And like, just imagine doing that for any of the, my sentences get long. 
and it, it's hard. So it's a lot easier to just like dictate it to myself. Uh, when I, I do that, when I'm, when I go, like you, go, you go for a, like a 20, 30 minute walk just to like get some air and then you get an idea and God bless headphones. You can just mutter to yourself. No one really notices it's Brooklyn. You just keep your head down. It's fine. <laughs> um, were, was it uncomfortable at all? Like, um, it, it's the intimacy in this book is so, and the relationship between Sam and Eleanor is so finely rendered and the fight in here the like main one is so good the little acts of kindness are so great their sex life is is rendered with such honesty and i wondered like was that hard at all to like use that um you know without projecting too much on, on onto your own life but i i find like using a relationship in your writing can be a tricky business particularly like if you're going to be asking that person to read pages later. Um, I, I don't know if that's something you want to touch. No. Well, I mean like e Eleanor is not Alex and uh, Sam absolutely has my employment history and many of the conditions under which I have lived, but like he doesn't make decisions that I necessarily would have wanted to make. And they're separate people, but what you do is you try to show love and especially like domestic love and what it is to like live with someone and try to build a home for each other with each other like inside of each other like that's that is an intimate thing and so what you want to do is you want to try to find a way to like display something that feels like what has happened to you without actually being what has happened to you right like you don't if you Every single time that I've actually tried to write something that is exactly what has happened to me, it has felt like hollow and like I'm trying to prove a point. But every time that I've tried to take a feeling that I've had and try to write something that feels like that feeling, it has been something that has always rung true. I love so, that. So, yeah. I, there, there's this thing I remember that my dad used to tell me when I was a kid and like used to like wrestle, but like the easiest way to wrestle something to the ground is to approach it from the side so that it does not see you coming. Right? Like if you run at someone, they're going to know, but if you like get them from the, like you can't, you can't say the thing that you're trying to say, you have to find a way to talk around it. And by talking around it, you actually talk about, you can actually do it. You can actually work out what it is that you're trying to say and convey and deal with. Love that. Um, speaking of your employment history, um, for the listeners out there, Sasha and I are former co-workers at uh, Stories Bookshop and Storytelling Lab in Park Slope, uh, which sadly no longer exists, but it was a great May time. May its memory be a blessing. Yes. Shout out to Maggie Pouncey and Matt Miller uh, and all the rest. Um, but did you write any of this while you were on the clock at Stories when you should have been? I did not. This oh, was really? all... Yeah, so the the story that it came from was written before. And I definitely, I, I was still working on the Western in my spare time. Right. That I was, was what you were writing on the clock. <laughs> in the basement. That was what I was doing in the basement yeah. on my break. We all did it a little bit. I, did, I think I got caught red-handed once or twice with my laptop open to a Word doc when I was supposed to be managing the store. Oh, no. See, I, I only recently switched over to a laptop during the, the pandemic when I was working, like, remotely. Uh, I was a desktop fella. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, just... just I got really in... 
when I was in when I was in art school, um, we had a I was at Tyler School of Art, which is part of Temple, and Temple had a program in Rome. And in Rome, the studios closed at night, and it was the first time that like I was I was a painter at the time, and like I just had to you have you have to stop working, and a desktop is this thing where like the work of you can't bring it around; it has to sit in one place. So like it just became this thing where work could be like for the time that it was confined to anything that happened after I would like have to jot down and deal with later. It became like a kind of, I don't want to say like discipline, but it just was, it was the process by which writing was something that felt easier for me. Yeah. I like that. Having a laptop made it feel like I could be writing at any point. And so anytime that I wasn't actually writing, it was my fault. Right. Right. So having it be this like separate act became like a way of just lessening the guilt of like not being able to be productive. Yeah. And finding a way to put what production means into perspective. Managing guilt. That's a lot of the writing process, if you ask me. Uh, um, at, another one of my favorite aspects of this book and just talking to you, uh, you know, when we worked together was the baseball stuff. You know, you do such a good job of working in the things that you love into this book. And it's really felt for the reader. You know, you have the Randy Johnson who murdered a bird with his fastball that makes an appearance. Some, some Roy Halladay uh, trivia, the, the season with the no hitter and the perfect game. Um, and then a lot about yeah, the, Jesus here, 33. Yeah. Um, RIP Roy Halladay. Um, and then you had a lot about the players union and minor league baseball and how exploited those players are. And I, I got to ask you now that, you know, you wrote this before the lockout now, Major League Baseball is in a lockout. Do you think baseball is a dead sport? You sort of, you sort of imagine it in this in this novel as um, baseball becoming a, an infomercial and empty stands uh, in a field just with lights and no players on it. And so I just want a quick take on the state of baseball. I mean, at the same time, like the big contracts that are going out are huge. So like clearly teams are willing to spend money, but at the same time, like teams are willing to spend money only because minor leaguers get shit. Their lives are horrible. Like you, if you don't get a good sign, I mean, I mean the, the kids, the international kids, right? They're 17 years old from like the, from like the Dominican, from South America. They're, they're sent to America. They fucking major league baseball got, got Congress to pass the save America's pastime act in what, like 2014, which states that minor leaguers are seasonal workers, life, like lifeguards. So they don't owe them health insurance or a single thing outside of the baseball season. They're only fed at home games when like they are in the thing. They're only paid when they're there. They all have to like, they have to sleep with host families. Like people are opening their homes for like four or five, like, kids some of whom don't speak english many of whom like didn't finish like they they don't have high school degrees kids like get drafted in their junior year of college so they don't finish college so they go there and if you don't get a good signing bonus you're getting paid only when you're there it's an hourly wage like you don't make any money you have to take odd jobs where you get injured during the thing there's no guarantee of anything and the major league minimum is like almost $500,000 if you make it to the bigs. Like, you're, you're set if you make it to the majors, but every single, like, the amount of people who are in the minor leagues, it's enormous. And then this last, past few years, they've been contracting the minors, and, like, last year the draft was, the, the Rule 5 draft was, like, like five, or the, sorry, the Rule 4 draft was five rounds or something, 
And all I could think, well, I, and I watched the draft every year. And so like I was watching it, and I was just thinking like all of these like college seniors who get drafted in the last rounds, like their dream is to do this. And so they're watching on live television as like their dream is killed in front of them. And all I could think of like what that would be like, to, like sit with your family thing, like, is this going to happen? I'm like, no, like it's not. And you're there with your family watching your dreams die. And so it's, it sucked. And so that, that made its way into there. But like, I don't know, man, the lockout, like the lockout is just management exploiting labor. Yeah. That's all it is. Like the, the lockout is ownership being like, we don't, we don't want to pay you. We don't want to make any concessions to you. And to a certain extent, the players have sold the minor leaguers up the river because they don't have any rights. You've got this, like the, the prolonged Chris Bryant thing where he was like service time manipulation. And that got like nothing happened with that. But somehow he was called up the day, like the day after they could have kept an extra year of control on him because he needed seasoning while he hit like 360. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> and then the what do you want to see? He shaved like one point off his strikeout rate? I don't. Yeah, crazy. And the game itself is in a, is in a tough moment too. Like the, the strikeout home run duality with a million you know the the big bullpens it's it's not a it's we not a great outcome man it's really yeah. it's it's like everyone's talking like it, yeah it's become like the sabermetric dr- wet dream right of just it's just like strikeouts walks and homers but right. small ball's fun small ball's great but like at the same time who doesn't love watching a home run who doesn't love watching a pitcher strike out 20 guys in a game like it's awesome yeah. Like yeah. on the one hand, it sucks. On the other hand, it's so cool. That's true. Yeah. 500 yeah. foot home run is a 500 foot home run. Like it's amazing watching Joey Gallo just like launch things to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Watching him show it like Shelly Otani is just like smacking dingers and striking dudes out. He's, he's, he's what Generation. Babe Ruth could have been, but he's Japanese and beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Sasha. Today's guest was Sasha Fletcher, and we were discussing his first novel, Be Here to Love Me at the End of the World. You can order your copy of the book or any of the others mentioned on today's podcast at skylightbooks.com or swing by and pick them up at the store. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again, Sasha, for uh, coming on the show. Mike, thank you for having me, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.